This is day two of our daily Bible reading. We will be reading through Genesis chapters 5 through 8. And then we will go to the Psalms and we will read Psalm chapter 2. Lord Heavenly Father, as we enter into your word this morning, please bless this time. Please help us to understand more depth in your word. Help us to see the hidden truths that are in here, the things that directly apply to our lives, so that we may grow in wisdom and in strength, that we would be obedient to your commands, and that we would grow in holiness to be more and more conformed to the image of your Son. Please bless this reading today and allow the Holy Spirit to teach. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Then the days of Adam after he became the father of Seth were eight hundred years, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were nine hundred and thirty years, and he died. Seth lived one hundred and five years and became the father of Enosh. Then Seth lived eight hundred and seven years after he became the father of Enosh, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were nine hundred and twelve years, and he died. Enosh lived ninety years and became the father of Canaan. Then Enosh lived eight hundred and fifteen years after he became the father of Canaan, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were nine hundred and five years, and he died. Canaan lived seventy years, and he became the father of Mahalalel. Then Canaan lived eight hundred and forty years after he became the father of Mahalalel, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Canaan were nine hundred and ten years, and he died. Mahalalel lived sixty-five years and became the father of Jared. Then Mahalalel lived eight hundred and thirty years after he became the father of Jared, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahalalel were eight hundred and ninety-five years, and he died. Jared lived one hundred and sixty-two years, and became the father of Enoch. Then Jared lived eight hundred years after he became the father of Enoch, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were nine hundred and sixty-two years, and he died. Enoch lived sixty-five years, and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God three hundred years after he became the father of Methuselah and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were three hundred and sixty-five years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Methuselah lived one hundred and eighty-seven years, and became the father of Lamech. Then Methuselah lived seven hundred and eighty-two years after he became the father of Lamech 
and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground, which the Lord has cursed. Then Lamech lived 595 years after he became the father of Noah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them from the face of the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms, and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark, and finish it to a cubit from the top, and set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth, to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life, from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. 
but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind, and of the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible, and gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did, according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean, two, a male and his female, also of the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Now Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood. Of clean animals and animals that are not clean, and of birds and everything that creeps on the ground, there went into the ark to Noah by twos, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. It came about after the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. In the six hundredth year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventeenth day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened. The rain fell upon the earth for forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark, they and every beast after its kind, and all the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds. So they went into the ark to Noah, by twos of all flesh in which was the breath of life. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him, and the Lord closed it behind him. Then the flood came upon the earth for forty days, and the water increased and lifted up the ark, so that it rose above the earth. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth 
so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed fifteen cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. All flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth, and all mankind. Of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth. And only Noah was left, together with those that were with him in the ark. The water prevailed upon the earth one hundred and fifty days. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. Also the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky was restrained, and the water receded steadily from the earth. And at the end of one hundred and fifty days, the water decreased. In the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. The water decreased steadily until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. Then it came about, at the end of forty days, that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made, and he sent out a raven, and it flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, so she returned to him into the ark, for the water was on the surface of all the earth. Then he put out his hand and took her, and brought her into the ark to himself. So he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent out the dove from the ark. The dove came to him toward evening, and behold, in her beak was a freshly picked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the water was abated from the earth. Then he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, but she did not return to him again. Now it came about in the six hundred and first year, in the first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. Then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth was dry. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful, and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife, 
and his son's wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by their families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night, shall not cease. Psalm chapter 2 Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart, and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger, and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence, and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the sun that he not become angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Okay, let's talk about what's going on here in Genesis. So we looked at the genealogy from Adam to Noah here in chapter 5. And the very first thing we see is how long these people lived back then. It's incredible to imagine what you could do in that span of time and what life was like back then. I find that so fascinating. And while we will never know, I still think it's very interesting and worth dreaming about. There is a scientific theory floating around within Christian scientist circles that might explain why they lived so long. And it's something that we'll definitely be talking about here shortly. But notice at the very end of chapter 4 in the book of Genesis, when Enosh was born to Seth, that men began to call upon the name of the Lord. So it appears that no one called upon the name of the Lord during the time of Adam until this period of time. So that's kind of sad when you think about it because that means that Adam abandoned God in some way. He lost that fellowship that he had with his creator, 
and it seems like he forsook him for the remainder of his life until we come to this point where Enosh is born. Now, we see a pattern in this genealogy, right? It talks about their name. It talks about the age they were when they had this particular son, how long their life was after that, and the fact that they died at the end. This is the result of sin. Sin caused this death to occur. Now, while it's not clear, it is suggested that this is talking about the particular lineage that God used to lead up to Christ. It doesn't mean that when it says here Adam was 130 years old, that the very first kid he had was Seth, right? Because we read in the previous chapter that Cain was the first son. So it is safe to assume that, for example, when we go to Seth, it says that he was 105 years old when he became the father of Enosh. That doesn't mean that he didn't have any kids until he was 105. That just means that he was 105 years old when this particular child was born. And this particular child is the one that carries on the royal lineage leading up to Jesus Christ. This is the righteous line, if you will. So that's how it should be properly understood, rather than saying that they were really old before they had kids. Now, they all have the same pattern, where they all died at the end, except for one, Enoch. It states that he walked with God. Now, when it says that he walked with God, it means that he lived with him. Or, if you go to the book of John, you can see similar language to how Jesus describes how we are supposed to abide in him. We are supposed to live with him. We're supposed to carry him everywhere we go, every moment of every day. Enoch accomplished this, and he is one of two people that never had to die. It says here that Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. In other words, and this is the same Hebrew word we see in 2 Kings when Elijah goes to heaven, he went directly to heaven instantly without dying. Not only because he was a righteous man, but it also gives us a sneak preview as to what we call the rapture, which you can read in 1 Thessalonians. The rapture being when Jesus returns, we will instantly be removed from the earth, and we will meet the Lord in the air, and we will go into heaven without having to die. If we are alive during that time, we will take part in that rapture. If not, then it says that our bodies will reunite with our souls, and it will be transformed into our glorified body. But we see this back in Genesis chapter 5, where somebody was raptured. So that's very interesting. When we get to verse 29, we see something that Lamech, the father of Noah, says that I find very interesting. He says that Noah will be the one to give them rest from their work. It's not very clear, but perhaps somehow they knew that something was going to happen in the future that Noah was going to be actively involved in. But nonetheless, we know that he was a pivotal person in God's activity at this time. 
And this is the first time that we see a reoccurring theme that you will find throughout the entire Bible from here on out. And that is the concept of something called the remnant. The remnant is going to be something you'll see throughout all the scripture because you'll see a small group of people that God will preserve in order to carry on his holiness and his righteousness. You'll see that here with Noah and his family. You'll see that with Abraham and his lineage. You'll see that with the Israelites getting out of Egypt. You'll see that throughout all of Israel's history. You'll see that in the New Testament when we have the disciples. And the list goes on. But you see a remnant that always remains where the vast majority are not going to follow the ways of God. But yet there will be a few, righteous few, that God will preserve or God will cause to be righteous and pleasing in his sight. In reality, true Christians are today's remnant. There are many people who say they are Christians, but they really are not. Because there is only one thing that truly validates that you are a Christian and that is having the Holy Spirit living within you. If you do not have the Holy Spirit within you, you are not saved. It really is that simple to describe. But in this day, the Holy Spirit was not with every believer, so the concept of the remnant is a foreshadowing of what's going to happen today. Now when we get to chapter 6, we see the condition of the world. First of all, it says that the earth had grown rapidly due to human longevity. Obviously, if you get to live 900 years, you're able to father a lot of children. And that was intentional, because God increased their lifespan so that they could populate the earth. He had always desired that for his people, to be fruitful and multiply. However, it says here that there was a group that went to the daughters of men and took wives for them, whomever they chose. This is unclear, but some say that it was angels that took on a human form and got women pregnant, and they had some sort of human-angel hybrid of some kind, called a Nephilim, also known as the race of giants. Now, the giant gene is going to carry on way past the ark, And there's archaeological evidence that suggests that maybe even Noah was a giant. But it really is just speculation, and it's not in the Bible, so take it for a grain of salt. But I still find that stuff very fascinating. But nonetheless, the story is not about this. The story is about the wickedness of the earth, and how God was going to do something about it. Now let's understand one characteristic of God. God does not make mistakes. The language that is used here can be misinterpreted. It says in my translation in verse 6 that the Lord was sorry that he made mankind. When you're sorry, that means that you are making an apology because you messed up or that you made a mistake. That's not what it's saying here. It's simply saying that in the original Hebrew, that he was sorry for them. He pitied mankind for its failure, and he was grieved by it. 
Sin grieves our Lord. He does not like evil. He hates sin. He cannot look upon it. It is so foul to him. His holiness must stay far away from that. So he decided that he was going to start over. He was going to preserve one righteous group of people, and he was going to repopulate the earth through them. And so we see a plan of redemption that God is using to preserve these people. The flood is an illustration of what Jesus Christ came to do. The Lord Jesus is our ark. He is our salvation in the midst of these storms and amidst the wickedness of this earth. Noah is described for us as being someone who is blameless in his time, and he walks with God. That is how God wants us to interact with him. And if we do that, then he could say the same thing about us, that we are righteous, blameless in our time, and that we walked with God. It is a matter of obedience and seeking the Lord that makes us this. There's nothing within us that makes us righteous. Only God is able to make someone righteous. And by extension, because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, we are righteous because of the imputation of his righteousness on us. So all of it is outside of ourselves. The only thing that is within us is making the decision to obey. And even then, often we need God's help on that. So at the age of 500 years old, Noah is told that God is going to flood the earth, and he has been commanded to prepare for it. Now, at this point in history, it had never rained. Can you imagine that? It had never rained in all of human history to this point. And while the lineage is pretty straightforward in how old people were, you're talking about a couple thousand years that people have been on the earth and it had never rained. For God to say that he is going to flood the earth and rain is going to fall from the sky was a foreign concept to them. But regardless, Noah still obeyed, and he was likely mocked. He was likely reviled for what he was doing because he was building a giant boat likely in the middle of land, and people were probably laughing at him, but he still did it anyway. And it says that the flood came when he was 600. So that means that he spent 100 years preparing for this event. Can you imagine that? So in those 100 years, he was building this ark, he was preparing the food, and then at the end of that, God brought the animals to Noah. Two of every kind, except for some that were clean. There were seven of them for the purpose of sacrifices. In the New Testament, it also says that Noah was a prophet. So he was likely proclaiming that there will be judgment. There will be destruction coming and that people need to repent, need to turn direction and go toward God. And nobody else was on that boat at the end of those 100 years, right? He spent 100 years witnessing and preaching God's redemption, and nobody responded. Imagine a pastor today trying for 100 years to convert one soul and not being able to. That must be very discouraging. But you never see Noah get tired or weary 
from doing the right thing. There's something very commendable about that. So then it describes how big this ship is, how it's designed, and these are very accurate measurements on how we build ships today. It's the basis of all shipbuilding. You take the width, and then you add six times the length, and that gives you a stable water vessel. And quite honestly, the way that the Ark is depicted in a lot of children's books is completely inaccurate to how the Ark is actually supposed to look. It's not a little tugboat with a little window on top. It's meant to be a much longer vessel. If you want to see a faithful recreation of the actual Ark, there is a Creation Science Museum in Kentucky where they built an exact replica of the biblical Ark. It's worth checking out if you're in the area, or perhaps on a vacation sometime. I'm thinking of doing it sometime to take my kids. Now, before we get into the actual flood account, I want us to understand something about how Noah was able to fit everything into the ark. It mentions that he had every beast of its kind, every bird of its kind, every creeping thing of its kind. Kind, kind, kind. So it's talking about a particular species, okay? So it is not so far-fetched to imagine that there is only one kind of dog that went on the ark. Think about it. We have a lot of different breeds of dogs today. But believe it or not, a vast majority of the breeds that we have today were invented, and that's right, I mean invented through selective breeding, in the last 100 years. So it's not so foreign a concept to think that all the potential genetic material were in two dogs, and those two dogs were the ancestors of all living dogs today. That's not a foreign concept. So it, it was a lot less than you would think it would be, in other words. Now, there is another species that we do have to consider that were likely on the ark as well. Dinosaurs. Dinosaurs are mentioned throughout the Bible, believe it or not. And it doesn't say them specifically here, but it is not so far-fetched to imagine that dinosaurs were on the ark. And again, it didn't need to be every species that we know of today, but likely there were dinosaurs on the ark. So that's certainly something to think about. But now let's talk about the flood itself. And this is the scientific theory that I personally affirm. It's called the canopy theory. So the way that it goes is based on how you see the creation story explained. It says that there were waters below the expanse, which is the sky, and there was water above the expanse, which was above the sky. Now, that could mean rain clouds at a glance, or there was a canopy of water in the atmosphere surrounding the circumference of the earth. It would make sense when it says later on that the floodgates of heaven broke open and poured upon the earth. Imagine all that canopy of water creating a water sphere around the earth. Why is this significant? Well, for one, that will create the greenhouse effect that is described in the early chapters of Genesis. But it would also explain why humans lived so long. Do you realize what ages us, what causes us to get old? 
Ultraviolet rays are what make you old. Even inside your house, ultraviolet rays are coming through your roof and are penetrating into your body. But what is the one thing that reflects ultraviolet rays? So would it be realistic that they lived so long because they were not exposed to ultraviolet rays? It's completely plausible. And then after the flood, it says all of that was fallen to the earth, which gives us the sky that we know today. That would explain, as we see in the later chapters of Genesis, how people's lifespans start to get shorter and shorter and shorter, to where by the time you get to Abraham, you live maybe 120 to 150 years. That would explain that. Another thing it might explain is why there was never a rainbow before that. The way that the rainbow is created is through the reflection of light through water droplets and all that, right? That's what we learned in elementary school. You wouldn't have that if the whole atmosphere was surrounded by water. And so after the flood, that would be the first time we see a rainbow. And so not only did God create it intentionally, but it also scientifically makes sense. Pretty bizarre, right? I don't know if you've ever thought that hard about it, but a lot of that stuff could make sense as to why the flood was significant in more ways than one. Now, something else to consider is that the fountains of the deep that we see in chapters 7 and 8 were opened and closed. So what it's talking about is that water was coming out from under the earth. And today, in the last few years, we discovered that there is a vast ocean under the earth that is triple the size of the ocean that we have on the surface. It's mind-blowing to think about that. But that would directly correlate with what the Bible has been saying for thousands of years, right? The Bible is correct. It is without error. And there it is, plain as day. The flood accounts for all these mysteries that the world tries to justify by other means because they hate God. Why are there seashells found on Mount Everest? That doesn't get there randomly from the ocean. Why are there things that exist in certain places that should never be there? It's because there was a global flood. It wasn't a localized flood. It was a global flood. How did the Grand Canyon get to look like the way it did? How is it that fossilization is even possible? There was a global flood. And let's take God at his word. So we see that in chapter 8 that they were on that ark for several months. And after the earth had dried out, then they left the ark. And Noah built an altar to honor the Lord with the clean animals, because remember he had seven of those. He didn't have two, and then he just killed off one whole species by offering something on the altar. But from then on, the command has been made clear for all animals and for all humans to be fruitful and multiply. That is a command that God has never revoked. So even today, with the governments of the world and the and the aristocracy telling you that the world is overpopulated, that is a lie. Let me tell you right now, that is a lie. I live in the state of Texas, and Texas is big enough to house all the people of the planet Earth comfortably. 
the earth is vastly underpopulated. And so don't believe that stuff. The idea of overpopulation and all that is a means of control, and it is actually a demonic agenda. So be careful what you listen to. But God made a promise here at the end of chapter 8 that he would never again flood the earth with water. And he intends to keep that promise. He never will. It mentions in Second Peter and in Revelation that the earth will not be destroyed by water. It will be destroyed by fire. But God promised he would never flood the earth again, and he will keep his promise. Moving on to Psalm chapter 2. I love this psalm. This is one of my favorite ones, simply because of what God does here. We see at the very beginning of chapter 2 in the book of Psalms that the world is devising plans to defy God. The kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed. In my translation of the Bible, it is a capital H, his, and a capital A, anointed. The only people who deserve this kind of capitalization is God himself. And so if it is against the Lord and his anointed, this is talking about God the Father and God the Son. So this is Jesus Christ being anticipated here. They are saying that they want to tear their fetters apart as if they are imprisoned by God, or rather they are bound by God in some way. So what are they saying, really? They are saying they want to be freed from the shackles of God. They don't want God to be involved in their lives. They don't want God to tell them what their destiny is. They want nothing to do with God whatsoever. And that is unfortunately the way the world is, in its unsaved state. But is God intimidated by millions, potentially billions of people being against him? Absolutely not. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He scoffs at them. He mocks them, and he laughs at their futile effort in defying him. Who do you people think you are? You think you can stop me? I created you. You and I are not even in the same league. I am far beyond you. Your pitiful efforts are going to accomplish nothing but your own destruction. So what he says in his anger, in his righteous anger, is, I don't know about y'all, but for, as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion. I have installed Jesus Christ as king of kings, lord of lords, and he is going to take care of you. He's going to rule you with a rod of iron. He is going to shatter you like earthenware. This is during the second coming of Christ. When he returns, he is going to be a conqueror king, and he is going to destroy all his enemies. Verse 7 is not only quoted by Jesus himself, but by other people in the New Testament. You are my son, today I have begotten you. This is again referring to the Messiah, the chosen one, Jesus Christ. So in light of what God thinks about all this, he gives them a warning in verse 10. Take warning, judges of the earth. There are going to be two outcomes to this fight. You are either going to bow willingly before your king, Jesus Christ, or he will make you bow before him. There will only be one 
winner in this battle, and it will be God. And when you go to judgment, you will either bow in submission or you will bow in defiance. Your choice. But either way, you are going to bow before your king. Praise God that he has all the power and he has all the authority to do this. Now for today's verse of the day, taken from Psalm chapter 2, verse 11. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. And that's all I have for today. Thank you for listening. I'm Ryan, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.